If you will turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. We only have 18 verses, uh, but I'm not going to do all 18 tonight. Uh, as any good Southern Baptist preacher, I am stretching out. Uh, Eddie asked, is this the last one in Galatians? No. <laughs> there is so much meat still in just chapter 6 alone that I felt doing just one message would be a disservice to what Paul writes and, and what Paul instructs us. And so we're going to, Lord willing, tonight uh, look at just the first 10 verses, and then the following week we'll end out um, in a message hopefully entitled Boasting in the Cross and, and the Cross Alone. Uh, and then I hope that you will stick with me after uh, Galatians. Uh, once we finish this series, we're going to be going into an old black and white town that I love so much, and I know some of y'all as well, a little town called Mayberry. And we're going to be looking at uh, the modern parables uh, that we can see through Mayberry and apply it to uh, the truths of the Word. And so that'll take us all the way into August, and then I'm going to pass everything back to Bo, uh, where he will dive back into the biblical base uh, theology series that uh, he has done on Sunday nights before. So I'm encouraged and looking forward to uh, all that God's going to do on Sunday nights here uh, throughout the summer. Just as a little recap of where we've been in Galatians, because we've covered a lot of ground. I think we started this series back uh, the first week of March. I think that is what, uh, what I have, at least in my calendar. And so just to give us a little understanding of what we're about to walk into with chapter 6, you'll remember from me that the first two chapters of Galatians was all about Paul arguing for the truth of the gospel, for the truth of the gospel. Paul contended with such words that if anyone were to proclaim a gospel contrary to the one that was proclaimed, which is Christ crucified, he said, let those people be accursed. So if anyone was to bring to you a gospel of works or a gospel added to Christ, he says, let that person be accursed. And then he unpacks that even more in chapter 2. And then chapters 3 and 4, Paul made a case against the false gospel of legalism, which you'll remember with me what legalism is, is that a, of a mindset of workspace that I have to make myself lovely before God. I have to work my way into God's good graces. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul made an argument against that and tore that apart by showing us uh, the truth of the gospel. He even uh, made a comment in chapter 3 that Jesus became a curse for us. Another Bible writer would even say, uh, or Paul would write in a letter, later uh, letter that, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so Paul is outlining that all the way from the beginning of creation, it was always God's plan that Christ would come and die for us, that Christ would redeem that which is lost, which is us, that we would not have to work our way into God's love. We would not have to make ourselves lovely. We would not have to somehow atone for our works. Rather, that was all done by Christ. I like how Paul puts it in Romans 8, um, that uh, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who, is, was, who was condemned for us. And so that, and Paul is just outlining that in chapters 3 and 4, and then he makes a case also that once we were a slave to sin, but once we become alive through the gospel, we become a child of God and an heir of God. And therefore, we can even say, Abba, Father, an intimate relationship with God, where we get to call him Daddy. And that is just such a beautiful uh, truth and uh, a beautiful reality of the gospel. And then you'll remember with me, and we spent two weeks in chapter 5, where we looked at the freedom that we have in the gospel and the life in the spirit. We looked at the, the decaying fruits of the spirit, or excuse me, the flesh, and looked at what that looks like. And we even saw in verse 21 of chapter 5 that if we continue in sin, if we delight in these sins, if we make these sins our home and abide in them, Paul even gives the uh, very harsh reality that if you live in that sin, if you live in that reality, that you have no partake in the kingdom of God. And then he outlines in verses 22 into uh, verse 23 the fruit of the Spirit and how that is to be the overflow of, a, of the Christian. And it all starts with love, love for the gospel and love for Christ. And that is just the overflow of a life lived uh, for Christ. And now we come into chapter 6, and we're going to see the responsibilities of the Spirit-led believer, the responsibilities of the Spirit-led believer. So if you will, let's look back at the text, and let's uh, uh, look at uh, cha uh, Galatians chapter 6. But we're going to start with verse 25 of chapter 5 as verses 25 and 26 is sort of 
heads right into uh, verse 1 of chapter 6. Paul writes to the church, he says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. One who is taught the word must share all the good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap, corrupt, uh, reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Will you pray with me? Father God, Lord, I thank you so much for this evening. Lord, I thank you for all that you've already done here at Cedar Street today. Lord, I pray that you have been glorified, that you have been lifted up, that, Lord, uh, lives have been drawn back to Christ. Lord, I pray that tonight would just be a continued of that edification of the life of the Spirit, of, uh, of the believer, Lord, that your Spirit would have his way here tonight. That, Lord, you would teach us, that we would see the practical ways that we are to live in Galatians chapter 6. Lord, I pray that I would decrease so that you may increase. And that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable in your sight. Oh God, I ask and pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if it's just me, but oftentimes I think I make things harder than they have to be. Does anyone else feel that way? Can I get an amen to, so I, I don't feel like I'm alone up here? <laughs> like, it's, it's ingrained in me. I don't know if it's in my DNA. You know, I, I've seen it um, in, my, in my father and my grandfather, and I've heard of my granddaddy Ben, my great-granddaddy, that uh, we chambers tend to make things harder than they have to be. We tend to find the hardest way possible to make something that's easy happen. Uh, and we live in an age, thankfully, though, of life hacks. Have y'all heard of that term before, life hacks? Uh, Bo has. Uh, life hacks uh, <laughs> is uh, an idea now, I think, uh, probably made uh, really popular by TED Talks and whatnot, where we find ways to make life easier, basically. That's, that's what it is. So uh, one of the life hacks that I looked up this past week, um, which... If I had known this at 12 years old, this would have made things so much more simpler. So my dad, when he was uh, working for a company called CompuChem, he would uh, go on uh, trips to Canada and South Africa and, and Spain and whatnot, and I never got to go. But he gave me the privilege of getting his luggage off the carousel at RDU. <laughs> but my dad had a black suitcase, and uh, I don't know if you all have ever suitcase shopped before, but they're all black, except for that one pink one. And so I would go to the carousel at Raleigh-Durham Airport, and I would be like, Dad, I'm going to get your suitcase, because this is just a privilege. And so I would go, and I would find that black suitcase, and it was a sea of black suitcases. One of the life hacks I saw that you're to do with suitcases is take a handkerchief, like a colored handkerchief, or like a ribbon or something, and tie that to the suitcase so that it is easier. That is a life hack. Or like this, I don't know if any of your homes suffer from this problem, but if your house smells and you have Febreze and Febreze and Febreze and you have used all kinds of canisters, if you have a, um, I saw this on the internet, if you, if you have a window unit air conditioning, you can take a dryer sheet, tape that over the vent, and it's going to uh, uh, make your house smell like gain or tide or whatever it is that you use. That is a life hack if you struggle with that. Or, I don't know if you're like me, but I love pancakes. Uh, that is probably one of my favorite 
things to eat in the world. It is not uh, filling. Oftentimes after I eat like four pancakes, two hours later, I am hungry. Not hungry, hangry. I think that's a better way to put it. My wife back there can uh, attest to that. But the problem with pancakes is they're messy to make, right? You put all the ingredients into a big bowl, right? And then you're supposed to like pour that onto the stovetop and it just makes a mess. I feel like I'm like an info commercial guy up here. But really, it all makes a mess. What you can do is take a old ketchup bottle, make sure you wash it out first, and then take a funnel and then take the pancake mix and put that in the ketchup bottle. And then you have a squeeze bottle to make nice, clean, non-messy pancakes. And then you make the pancakes, your kitchen's not a mess, everyone's happy. These are life hacks. These are supposed to make your life better. And I find Galatians 6 to be that for the believer. Galatians 6 is everything that Paul has been teaching and talking about from chapter 1 all the way to this point, and he's trying to make it easier for the believer. He is trying to give practical applications to what a life by the Spirit looks like. I don't know if you all know this, but chapter 6 follows chapter 5. I had to go to college to learn that. (laughs) And chapter 6 follows such a beautiful passage of what it looks like to have be led by the Spirit, to have the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And so chapter 6 is, again, just an overflow of what it looks like to practically live in the Christian faith. And so we're going to look at uh, several of those tonight. So if we will, look at me back uh, at 6.1, Galatians 6.1. And we will see this idea of gentle restoration, this idea of gentle restoration. Look back at the text in verse 1, and notice that it starts with brothers. It starts with brothers. This is a family language that Paul is using. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You see, the context of restoration should be family. We should seek to restore those in the family of faith that are falling away from the faith. We should seek to restore those who are brothers and sisters in our church, back to Christ. Paul says that, uh, there, that we should only show that kind of love to a church member, that we are to love a brother in such a way that we want to see them restored back to Christ. Now, notice here in the text that he doesn't say, if anyone's caught in transgression, You who are spiritual should lord it over them. You should make much of their sin and humiliate them. No. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, just a little quick bit of Q&A. True or false, is gentleness part of the fruit of the Spirit? I should hear like a resounding true right here. Okay, okay. We'll work on the Q&A later. But if the fruit of the Spirit has an aspect of gentleness to it, then if we have truly received such grace from Christ and we see a brother who has fallen away from Christ, shouldn't we want to extend the same grace that we have received to them? We should want to restore them a spirit of gentleness, not in mockery, not in saying, ooh, look what you did, you did something bad, you know, whatever trying to make them feel even worse than they already do, probably. Rather, we restore them in gentleness. Let me bring this home for you as well. How did Christ restore you? Did Christ look at you in your sin? Look at in your struggles? Look at the skeletons in your closet that no one, you want no one else to even know about? Did Christ look at that, broadcast that to the world? Or did he look at you in love and grace? just like he did to the woman caught in adultery in John 8 and said, neither do I condemn you. You see, the way that Christ has been to us, so should we be to others. We should seek to restore those who are lost in a spirit of gentleness, in a spirit of love and grace. And as my pastor likes to always tell me each week, in a spirit of grace and truth. That is what we should be as believers marked by when we seek to restore that which is lost, 
we should seek to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Also notice the warning that Paul has. He says in verse 1, he says, You who are spiritual should restore him a spirit of gentleness, and then keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You see, oftentimes when we try to help someone, and we get into the mud and the mire with them, don't you get dirty as well? Uh, several years ago, a friend of mine, uh, my best friend, I've mentioned him before, Ryan, uh, I was, there's a bow noseless road. There's a road that leads from the McDonald's to the seminary, back to the seminary. And there's a part there where there's like a nice ditch, a nice ravine. And it was raining one day, and someone was uh, trying to get to class in a hurry, and they cut Ryan off the road. I mean, that's just crazy. A seminary student trying to make their class cut someone off the road, and Ryan, it was raining, falls into the ditch. And so his little red Civic car is stuck right, right in the ditch. And I, at the time, had a white Jeep instead of my green Jeep, and I'm driving by him, and I go, that's my best friend. Without even thinking it, people, here's what I did. I turned my Jeep around in a safe way, and I got right in the mud and the mire with him. Don't you know, at that point, it was two cars that needed to be towed out of that ditch. But I was so concerned for my friend that I put my Jeep in harm's way just to make sure that he was okay. Now, I know that's a little little comical way of looking at it, but the same is true here. When we see a brother or sister lost in sin, whatever that sin looks like, whether it's an addiction or uh, abuse or just in bad relationships with people or, you know, insert whatever, we need to guard ourselves as well to make sure that we don't get covered in the mud and the mire that they are in as well. Otherwise, we too could be found in that same sin. We are not immune to struggles in this life. If you think that you are so great and so mighty that you too cannot fall into sin, let this be a warning for you tonight. You too can fall. Bo and I have seen countless stories come across our, our computer screens on Christianity Today or Southern Baptist News or whatnot of pastors or professors who thought themselves immune because they were in the Word and they were teaching the Word that they let sin take over their life and now they are discredited from the ministry. We who are spiritual should make sure that we do not get caught in that same sin. So how do, how do we make sure that doesn't happen? As we're pointing someone back to Christ, we too need to look to Christ. I know that sounds so simple, but it's so true and so life-saving. As you, as you are finding a friend who is lost in their sin, you point them back to Christ and you show them how glorious Christ is. You show them that Christ is all that they need for everlasting joy. You show them that Christ is all that they need in this life to have satisfaction and pleasures forevermore. And as you point them to Christ, you point yourself to Christ. You remind yourself of that same gospel. You remind yourself of the gospel that saves and redeems. You remind yourself that you are also a sinner. You do not take on a, 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 an an idea of pride, saying, I, I'm okay, I, I, I don't need the, I, I'm not going to fall into this. No. You guard yourself by reminding yourself that you need the same gospel that they need. And so as you restore your brother lost in sin, Paul warns, saying, keep watch on your own life. Keep watch on your own heart, lest you, lest you be tempted as well and fall into sin. And also what I see in verse 1 is this. Are you concerned for strange church members? Are you concerned with members in this church, with members in this body that have fallen away from, from the church? A month after we got married, uh, Melanie and I uh, uh, rescued two cats from the SBCA in North Carolina. And you'll often hear me refer to these cats as my kiddos or our kiddos. I love uh, Eobard, our little brown tabby cat, and our little uh, uh, turkey, turkey ball, Jessie. She's a big girl. And uh, everything in me wants to protect them and make sure they are never lost. In fact, so much so that I would have anxiety in my heart and my mind uh, when we lived in, the, in our apartment complex in Raleigh because we never know if maintenance workers were going to come into 
our building or not. Uh, sometimes they would let us know, sometimes they didn't. And I was always afraid, is someone going to come in and forget to close the door and then our cats uh, run out thinking something's better out there. And so I was always afraid of losing them, that I'm almost way overprotective, where if the door is just slightly jarred, I freak out, no, 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 close the door. My wife's nodding her head back there saying, yes, he is that weird. And yet, I wonder, do I worry so much about those two cats being lost again as I am a soul being lost as well? Are we so concerned about the perishable that we are forgetting to worry about the soul of a brother or sister lost in sin? Just a little warning and a little food for thought there. Also see with me that in, as Paul continues in this practical understanding, we're called to carry each other's burdens. We're called to humble burden-bearing. Look with me in verses 2 through 5 here of Galatians 6. He says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one, excuse me, for each will have to bear his own load. Not only are those who are uh, living in sin that need our help, but also those who are walking with the Lord and just have everyday burdens. We are called to humbly burden bear with them. What Paul is saying here is this. He says, do not let your brother get crushed. I think that's a great way to summarize those three verses. Do not let your brother get crushed. And we are to be alert. Be quick to act to ease his or her burden. I think the book of James shows this as a selfless act. I like how he puts it in his letter to the church. He says that if you see a brother or sister in need, and say, be warm and be filled, and yet do nothing to help them. What good is that? What good is it to look at someone who is hungry or thirsty or naked and say, be warm and be filled, and yet do nothing? Let me put this in a more practical way. And this hits home as well. I'm stepping on my own toes here. What good is it if you say, hey, I'll be praying for you, and yet we never do anything to help a brother or sister with their burden? If we know of someone in need, Paul is saying this. He says that we are to help them. Don't let them be crushed by that weight, but rather come alongside them and ease their burden. Now, Paul is not saying here that we are not to go to Jesus first. I don't want you to think that Paul is sort of bypassing that. Rather, he is assuming you're already doing that. Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to believers. He's writing to the church. He's, and he's just adding to it, saying, if we see a brother or sister in need or in hurt or in want, are we just saying to them with words? Or are we showing it with action and, and coming alongside them and helping them? And notice in verse 2, Paul assumes that burdens are a reality in a fallen world. Burdens are a reality in a fallen, fallen world. Paul assumes that burdens in the church in Galatia and in the 21st century church in Metter, that these things are going to happen. Life is going to hit hard. Life is not always going to be easy. Life is not always going to be rainbows and sunshines. There are going to be days of constant thunderstorms, which I feel like is a way of life right now in our little city. Each day it seems like there's always one thunderstorm, and I feel like that's life as well, is it not? That life can be going so easy, and then all of a sudden... We hit a pothole of some sort or a storm happens. And Paul is assuming this reality that burdens are going to happen. And then also in in verse 2, we see that we're not self-sufficient. We are not self-sufficient. I don't know if you know this, but none of us in this room are Superman. And that's a hard reality for me to take in because Superman is my favorite. And that's a struggle for me to realize that I am not self-sufficient, that I need help. We need help in this life. 
We are called to community. I like how uh, an old belief of the church says that we are saved into the church. We are not saved into a silo. We are not saved into a lone ranger mentality. We are saved into a body of believers. And these body of believers, this is our family. And we are called to come alongside and help. Come alongside and ease the pain and the struggle that we see our brothers and sisters in. And also notice in verse 2 that by doing so, we fulfill the law of Christ. We fulfill the law of Christ. Let's look back at verse 2. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I like how John Stott says in his commentary that the law of Christ is to love one another as he loves us. That was the new commandment which he gave. And so let me ask you a question. How has Christ loved us? By carrying our burdens. And not just so the physical burdens that we carry, but he carried our sin burden to the cross. He carried the weight of our sins to that cross. And so I've said this before, and I will say this to my grave. As Christ has been to me, so I shall be to others. As Christ has shown grace to me, so I shall extend that grace to others. If Christ carried my burdens, then I'm also to show that same love to others. I'm to be that conduit of his grace in this world. I'm to be the hands and feet of Christ. I think Christ said it best uh, when he said that when you uh, clothe and feed and, and give water to those in need, you've done it to me as well. As Christ has been to me, so I shall be to others. And I will help carry the burdens of others and so fulfill the law of Christ. And also notice that Again, Paul warns about pride here in verses 3 and 4. Pride hinders our ability to uh, help those with burdens. Pride hinders that. Look with me back in verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For anyone who thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Paul adds caution to burden bearing. For the person who thinks they are something, they really aren't. You all know people like that, where they think that they are uh, the biggest and the baddest and the best. Well, really, they aren't. It's all just a show. And Paul says that those kinds of people, that pride, God's going to oppose it. You see, we need to be humble when we come with burden bearing. Just like we are when we do gentle restoration to our brothers in verse 1, we need to come with a humble humility and saying, hey, I might not have it all together, I might even know how to get you out of this mess, but I can help sh- uh, shoulder the load. I can help you with this. Going back to the illustration I had um, when Ryan was in, a, in the ditch, I had no idea how to get him out of that ditch. All I knew was that my friend was in trouble. And in my love and care and not my pride, because I am not the guy you want with mechanic stuff, I said, I'm going to help you, brother. And so I stood in the rain with him. I don't know why we stood in the rain. I mean, we could have gotten in our cars. But we stood in the rain waiting for the tow truck to come. That is what that looks like practically in this life. Pride will hinder that. This verse also reminds me of a story about uh, Muhammad Ali. Now, I'm not one for sports uh, analogies. That's both uh, 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 area in life. That's a good way to put it. But this story has something that I think you'll see uh, why I know this story. You see, Muhammad Ali, allegedly, he was uh, about to take off on a plane. And the stewardess came by and looked at him and said, Hey, uh, you need to buckle your seatbelt. And Ali looked at her and said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the stewardess replied to, her, to him and said, Well, Superman don't need no plane to fly. Don't be so arrogant. In your, in your life that you think you have it all together when you don't. Remember that God's going to oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. And so when we come alongside someone and, and their needs and help them shoulder their burdens, remember to come in humility and show the same grace that Christ has given us. And then also you'll see in verse 6, we're called to love the Word of God. Verse 6, we're called to love the Word of God. Look when we back at the text where it says, One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. 
one who has taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Paul shifts gears a little bit here. And he starts to speak about the responsibilities of the teachers and the preachers and the hearers of those uh, two people. Pastors and teachers, there are some responsibilities for us. So if you're a Sunday school teacher or if you aspire to be a Sunday school teacher or a small group leader or a pastor, these things apply to us here. Pastors and teachers are called to expound the Word of God, meaning to teach clearly and plainly the Word of God. The word that Paul uses for taught and teacher here in the Greek is catechio, which means that we are to, uh, which is where we get our word catechism from. And catechism is probably a word we don't use a lot in Baptist circles, but it's a great word that means a question and answer on how to learn and teach. Basically, a catechism is question of the faith, and here's the answer. Uh, what is the chief end of man is to enjoy God and glorify Him forever. And Paul is showing us that a great way to teach as a, is that Q&A style of here's a question and here's the answer, and the word teaches that plainly. Also, verse 6 needs to be seen in light of the entire letter. We need to look at verse 6 in the entirety of what's going on in Galatians. Remember with me the purpose for why Paul wrote this letter, the false teachers that were entering into the church, these false teachers that were mutilating the gospel that were teaching false doctrines. The false teachers had deviated from the truth of the gospel, and they were adding to it. And so Paul, knowing this, in his conclusion, he is still trying to get every shot he can to get people to see that these Judaizers that are coming in teaching this works-based mentality, that is false. And that the Galatians and us need to guard ourselves from it. And so he's bringing it full circle to the believers, that if you truly know Christ and are led by the Spirit of Christ, then you will love the truth of God's Word. You will love the truth of God's Word. And then there's responsibilities of the receiver. They should learn from their teachers and pastors and be able to also teach others. One of the good signs of a good teacher is that the student can reteach what was taught. A good sign of a good teacher is that the student can reteach what is taught. A good example of this is I love history. Uh, history is probably the most, uh, is the area in my life that if I wasn't going to become an artist and a graphic designer, if I wasn't going to become an uh, investigative reporter, and if I wasn't going to become a preacher, then I probably would have become a history teacher of some sort. And that was uh, taught at a very early age. I had some great teachers in sixth grade and in uh, 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 12th grade and 10th grade, so many great professors and teachers in colleges. And I am grateful for parents who... When they asked me what I did today at school, I didn't all, most of the time I did say nothing. I'm sure you guys have heard that from your kids or grandkids. Nothing, I didn't do anything. But sometimes when something really caught my attention and my teacher taught it in such a way that just gravitated me to it, I would sit at the dinner table over a plate of spaghetti or turkey or something, and I would then teach my parents what I was taught. And they would often know what started World War I, or they knew what, about War of 1812 or whatnot, but they, were, they wanted to hear if I knew what I was talking about. And, it, and then oftentimes I was able to teach them something that they didn't know. A sign of a good teacher is if a student can reteach the material. And a sign of a good preacher or teacher is can the church member reteach that as well? Are we, making it, are we saying it in a way that is easily accessible to the church member? Or are we using high language and ivory tower mentalities? We need to put it in a way that people can understand it, relate to it, and then teach it, and then use it to minister to the gospel to others, to be evangelists in this community. So the good question is, are you listening to the Word of God being taught from the pulpit on Sunday night, on Wednesday night, on Sunday mornings? Are you listening, soaking it in, in such a way that you can teach it to someone else? Are you soaking it in so that you can share the good news of Christ with people in your, in your life? Are you soaking it in so that when someone asks, what did you learn yesterday at church, or what did you do yesterday at church, or did you go to church, you can say, yes. We talked about Psalm 42 on Sunday morning and go into that, and we looked at Galatians 6 that evening and be able to share the good news of Christ. Are you soaking it in in such a way that you can be an extension of that grace toward, towards others?
And then also look with me here in verses 7 through 8 that we are called to strive for personal holiness. We are called to strive for personal holiness. And the text says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Paul, in one sentence, calls us to personal holiness. John MacArthur says it like this, that the Christian has only two fields in which he can sow, that of his own flesh and that of the Spirit. We reap what we sow. And Paul calls the church to holiness by saying that we are to sow to the Spirit so that we may be found faithful to receive the crown of life. As we saw in the previous week when we looked at Galatians 5, we saw that what happens when the decaying fruits are evident in our life, when we delight in the sins, we saw what happens to a life lived in the flesh. They reap what they sow. But rather, you also saw what happens when you allow the fruit of the Spirit to be the overflow of your life. You reap what you sow. You reap, if you want holiness, are you sowing the gospel in your life? What I mean when I say that is this. Oftentimes, when I've taught the church members in the past and listened to podcasts and listened to the preachers talk, Many people want to have holiness in their life. Many people want to be more like Christ. Many people want to put to death sin, and they want to end it. They want to stop going after it. They're tired of of constantly failing. And then the answer that I often hear is, well, brother, sister, are are you striving for holiness in your life? Are you reminding yourself of the need, of your need for the gospel? Are you sowing the gospel in your life? Are you reminding yourself of Christ? Are you reminding yourself of Christ crucified? Are you putting uh, uh, guards in place to make sure that you don't go into those areas of sin? Or are you just saying, hey, I want holiness, but really uh, I'm not doing anything to make it happen in my life? You reap what you sow. And if you want holiness in your life, church, if you want your life characterized by a life lived for Christ and a life lived in holiness, then you need to ask the Lord to sow the gospel in your life, to recall to mind the very nature of what Christ did for you, that Jesus lived the life that you couldn't live, and he died the death that was meant for you, that he took your place on the cross. And then you let that moment just sort of sit in you, And remind yourself of the great grace that's been given to you. And then say, you know what? Because of what he did for me on the cross, I am not going to go after that sin. Because I see how great my Savior is, and I see how much I need him. And I see what what his blood has done for me. I am not going to make a mockery of him. And so I'm not going to go after that sin. That's what I've been sharing with you guys for the past uh, few weeks of this idea of the uh, expulsive power of the new affection. That for personal holiness to happen in our life, we need to expel the power of sin. We need to expel it. But it's not just that I say no to sin. I say yes to Christ. And I see Christ as a greater affection than a momentary pleasure in this world. I said it like this, uh, I think last time we met, that would you rather have a uh, mud pie with sprinkles on it and, I don't know, chocolate syrup? Or would you rather have a nice smoked ribeye with a twice-baked potato, grilled asparagus, cheesecake? Would you rather have a lovely meal? Or would you rather have fleeting pleasures of a mud pie? This is your life on sin, and this is your life on Christ. Do we want Christ? Or do we want sin? Because if you want holiness in your life, then you need to strive after it. You need to run the race with endurance so that you may attain Christ. John Stott also uh, writes, he says, Every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fantasy, wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh.
every time we linger in bad company whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist, every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up praying, every time we read pornographic literature, every time we take a risk that strains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we sow to our sin nature and then wonder why we do not reap holiness. Church, I want us to be marked as a church that is striving for holiness in our lives. I don't want Cedar Street to be known as a church that is reaping sin and then saying we're holy. No, I want us to be marked by the gospel. I want our lives to be marked by the holiness that Christ purchased for us at the cross. And so do not sow to your sin nature. Do not sow to the flesh. Do not sow to that sin that so easily entangles you, but rather sow to the gospel. Remind yourself of what Christ did. Be in this word. Spend time with fellow believers like this. Have an accountability partner that asks you, what's going on in your life? How are you doing? Spend time with the church. Strive for holiness. And also, as we finish out tonight, we'll see in verses 9 through 10 that we're called to live out practical goodness. We're called to live out practical goodness. Paul concludes this section of his letter with some encouragement and some instruction, which is par for the course for Paul. And Paul calls us to practical goodness. Look back at the text in verses 9 through 10. And he says this, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. If we do not give up, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are are of the household of faith. In verse 9, Paul comments that compassionate ministry can make you weary. Contending for the gospel can make you exhausted. We can all become discouraged in doing good deeds. And Paul says, press on. Uh, Now, I speak for myself. I don't want to speak for my fellow VBS workers this week, but I don't know about you, but uh, Friday night I slept uh, like the hardest I've ever slept in my life, and I slept into Saturday morning wanting to just live in my bed. Pressing on into VBS, that was hard. I know uh, Debbie was there, and it's a marathon to get through a week like that. And Paul says to press on, continue to do good because of the seeds that were sown there, of the lives that got to hear the gospel, that is greater than just uh, a few uh, a week of being exhausted. I like how Paul puts it like this. This uh, momentary suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. And we will see one day these lives living for the gospel. We will see them grow up in Christian maturity, hopefully, as we pray for that. And so a week of exhaustion, Paul says, press on, continue to do it. Also, look with me, uh, actually, I'm going to read it for you. Paul, in his own life, had many struggles. I'm going to read something from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I believe. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, this is Paul talking, the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, uh, rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, There is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and am I not weak? Who is made to fall, am I not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. That's found in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 24-31. What would make a man continue to endure hardship after hardship like that? What would make a man endure constant beatings for the sake of the the gospel? What would make a man want to get back on a boat after being shipwrecked? The gospel. You see, the gospel is what propels us 
to do these things. The gospel is what propels us in hardship to say, Christ is worth it. Christ is worth this momentary affliction so that I might receive and see others come to know Christ. Christ is worth this momentary hardship of being shipwrecked, of being beaten, of, uh, of, of being naked and in need. Christ is worth it. Christ is better. That's something that I'm going to be looking at with the students in July as we go on our retreat, uh, Lord willing, and try to show them through the Scriptures that Christ is greater and better than anything this world has to offer better than any momentary pleasure or any accolade or any wealth. Christ is better than that. To have Christ and to see Him and to savor Him and to want more of Him, that is greater and better. And that is what propels Paul and that is what propels us at Cedar Street to continue to do good things for Christ. No matter the hardship, no matter the pain, no matter the heartache, we will see Christ proclaimed in this community for the sake of His glory and His honor. Also, there's instruction in verse 10 that we are to do good to everyone and especially the household of faith. We are to love others as Christ loved us. Our church should be marked as a church known for helping those in our community and in the body of Christ. Put it plainly as simple. If Cedar Street were to disappear overnight like that, the church building gone, and we weren't here, would Metter miss us? Would Candler County miss Cedar Street? Would Statesboro and Swainsboro, Claxton, Reedsville, would they miss Cedar Street? Are we a church marked, known by helping those in need, by doing things not to make our name known, but to make the name of Christ known? Are we a church marked by that? I pray that we are. I pray that that is the beating drum of this church, is a life lived for missions, a life lived for the Great Commission that Christ has given us. That is not a suggestion. That is a command that we are to go into all the world and share the good news of the gospel to all those. In a few weeks on Father's Day, uh, we're going to have a young man, one of Bo's friends uh, from the seminary. He and his wife are about to go on mission uh, with the IMB uh, to go into a, a nation in Southeast Asia to share the gospel. This is a closed nation. What would make a man want to do that? The gospel. And the fact that there are lives there that have never heard the name of Christ. That have never heard of the grace that can be found. There are people there striving in their own work, striving in their own mentality, striving to please something that doesn't even exist. And that's what propel a man and his wife to go into a closed nation and share the gospel. They want to do good practically. Not to make their name known, but to make Christ known to all the world. And so then as we have opportunity, Paul says, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. As we have opportunity, brother and sister, are you looking for those opportunities? Are you being proactive? Or are you waiting for the problem to just come at your doorstep? And, that, and then respond, that's good too. But I'm also asking, are you being proactive? Are you looking for those in need and then saying, I can help you? Or I can help you out with a meal? Or I can uh, help you in insert X, Y, and Z? Are you looking for those opportunities? As Christ has been to me, so I shall be to others. Let us at Cedar Street be a spirit-led people marked by gentle restoration, humble burden-bearing, loving the Word of God, striving in personal holiness, and then living out practical goodness in this life. And all of that does not come by your own strength. All of that doesn't come by you willing yourself to have all that. All of that comes by living in faith to Christ, of saying, I can't do this. Lord, help me. 
Lord, help me in these areas where I'm struggling with. Help me to gently restore. Maybe you, have, maybe, uh, you struggle with a harsh word instead of a gentle word. Maybe you're not good at burden-bearing with others. Maybe holiness is something that you're struggling with. Whatever it is that you're struggling with right now, ask the Lord to help you. And He will be there to help you. He loves to abundantly give more than we can ever hope for or imagine. We serve that kind of God who gives grace to those who ask. But brother and sister, we don't do any of this on our own strength. We do it on Christ and Christ alone. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All, every, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And so I want to end the way I ended a few weeks ago by asking this. We must resolve daily to live by the Spirit. We must resolve daily to live by the Spirit and the Spirit alone, to press into Christ so that He can change us, transform us, make us more like Him so that we do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Because if you, if you, if you satisfy the desires of the flesh, if you gratify those things, then verses 1 through 10 of chapter 6 will not be of you. You'll be those decaying fruits. Don't satisfy those things. Rather, press into Christ so you can make much of Him. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I thank you for your, your love for us. Lord, I thank you that, Lord, in our weakness, you are strong. So, Lord, I pray that in these areas where we're struggling with tonight, if we're struggling with how to gently restore a brother lost in their sin, Lord, I pray that you would help us to find those words, to remember how you were with us, and then that we would be that way to the others. Lord, be with us tonight, Lord, and, and help us to live out the truth of chapter 6 of Galatians. I ask for your grace. In Christ's name, amen.